Hi there, this is Austin Hetzler, the pastor of Christ the Rock Church of Elyria, Ohio. We at Christ the Rock are humbled and grateful to be a part of your sanctification today as you listen to this sermon. But at the same time, we want to encourage you to be a member of a good local church and not to allow online sermons to replace the local church and to benefit from the life of that church and to give your spiritual gifts back to that church. Having said that, our website is www.christrockchurch.com. If you go there, you can find sermons, blogs, and other resources as well as our location and service times. You can also listen to the sermons on Bible Thumping Wingnut, Podbean, iTunes, Google Play Music, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and Stitcher. I, along with the membership of Christ the Rock Church, pray that this sermon will be a blessing to you. Dear Heavenly Father, give me grace as I teach. Humble your people and sanctify them through this teaching. Where sin is present, Lord, we ask that you remove it from us, correct our hearts, give your people focus, and remove distractions from them as they hear this teaching. I know by now some of you may be like, I'm sick of this topic of money, but we're on part three, and we got two more to go after this. So, so I ask for your benefit that you continue to receive this message with a glad heart and wanting to better understand this topic of how to manage your finances from a biblical perspective. A little recap in part one of the series, we discussed basically some background idea of what the Bible says about money. In part two, we talked about debt and borrowing what you should be doing if you're a single person living on your own, what you should be doing if you're every month in the red with your finances, and finally, how to put it into action, managing your money. And then there was a very, very tiny portion we quickly discussed, and it was the biblical model is one of giving, not getting. And in this lesson, we will begin discussing a little bit more about this idea, and in part five, we'll really hit on, on that idea. In this message... Uh, there will be aspect. Oh, we'll be discussing aspects of giving. There will be times I maybe stray a bit f- uh, from giving and just more into historical facts or a deeper, a deeper background and something I thought was interesting. And then just one's heart or focus on money when it shouldn't be. So we'll start with. Um, I want to st- st- state here, and I will discuss more later on. If you do not have money to pay your own bills timely, don't have money to eat to provide for your family, etc., then do not give to the church. This is not what God would want. In lieu of that, though, I'm sure God would want you to fix quickly this issue, if possible, and partake in the joy of giving, as discussed in previous lessons. But as I was reviewing this lesson, again, I was struggling with this uh, little disclaimer to start. Because I'm under the belief our church will hear this disclaimer and place themselves into this category of poverty. Let me tell you something, and I'm going to be frank, but we are not a church who consists of poverty families. We see, our, we, we see with our lips, we talk like we live in poverty, but the way we spend our cash goes counter to this claim. All families here have a car, most two, homes, accessories, we eat out, etc., Uh, People living in poverty know no such life, at least to the degree we are living it. 
We mentally convince ourselves that we can't give to the church or give more appropriate amount due to our poverty. We have no idea what poverty is in this church. We talk and act so much like a broke church. When I say this, I mean it as collective families within the church. That, I, that I'm convinced if we're traveled of our struggles to the Macedonian churches of old, who we will study about in part five of our series and who is the model of Christian giving, they would end up actually donating to us. And for those that don't know, the irony is they truly were church and families that were living in poverty. I'm not saying there aren't families who have it harder here in this church, because there are. But what I can tell you is most, fam- most of the families struggling to the degree they are struggling are due to own personal decisions that got them there. I used to make excuses in my head on why so-and-so couldn't give or didn't give or gave little. But I'm under the belief now um, if sacrifices were made, then they could uh, partake in the joy of giving. And I don't want to spoil the end of this lesson, but we could be doing more. So I urge you truly to listen to this message. This will be the second time as a church you hear it, and three times for those who attend CE Hour and the men's study. And I pray that the wall that is preventing conviction from happening in your life in this area would be shattered. Because for those of you who are thinking this lesson is for someone else in the church, I want you to know more likely than not, it's not. It's for you. Start examining um, your life in this area and determine if you're really being honoring to God or not. Quit making excuses. Quit hiding behind the autonomy and the fact that people don't know what you give, if you give, or how much you give, and own up to it. Stop being holier than thou in speech, but not action. So with that, we'll start. I want to start with money and salvation. And let's first make something clear. I'm not saying you can buy your salvation, nor am I saying if you don't give, you're not saved. But what I will say is looking at scripture, a fruit of repentance is shown in how you handle your money. Let's consider the following. In Luke 3, crowds are coming to be baptized and picking up in verse 10. It says, and the crowds were questioning him, saying, then what are we to do? And he would answer and say to them, the one who has two tunics is to share with the one who has none, and the one who has food is to do likewise. Now even tax collectors came to be baptized, and they said to him, teacher, what are we to do? And he said to them, collect no more than what you have been ordered to. And the soldiers also were questioning him, saying, what are we to do? We as well. And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone, nor harass anyone, and be content with your wages. And so these people were recently baptized, presumed believers, and they were being advised on what topic immediately after wealth. They were being advised to share, to give, to the tax collectors, don't steal, to the soldiers, do not steal. And this is right after salvation and baptizing. This is the changing of heart. This changing of heart of your heart should be seen in this area of your life. Looking, in, looking at Zacchaeus in Luke 19, 1 through 10, it says, Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through, and there was a man called by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. Zacchaeus was trying to see who Jesus was, and he was unable to do to the crowd because he was short in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up a sycamore tree in order to see him because he was about to pass through that way. And when Jesus came to that to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for today I must stay at your house. And he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. When the people saw this, they all began to complain, saying, He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner? But Zacchaeus stopped and said to the Lord, 
Behold, Lord, half of my possessions I am giving to the poor, and if I have extorted anything from anyone, I am giving back four times as much. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because he too is the son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. So in this moment, we'll stray from giving for a second and to give a little history on tax collectors I found interesting. Let's first understand Zacchaeus for a moment. Zacchaeus was a tax collector, and tax collectors were, very, were not very fond of back in the day, and nor are they now. They're just called IRS agents. So they were disliked because they collected money no one wanted to pay. Secondly, tax collectors in the Bible were typically Jews who were working for the hated Romans. These individuals were seen as turncoats, traitors to their own countrymen. Rather than fighting the Roman oppressors, these publicans were helping them and enriching themselves at the expense of their fellow Jews. Third, it was common knowledge that the tax collectors cheated the people they collected from. By hook or by crook, they would collect more than required and keep the extra for themselves. Everyone just understood that that was how it, it worked. The tax collector Zacchaeus, in his confession to the Lord, mentioned his past dishonesty, as we read in Luke 19.8. Fourth, because of their skimming off the top, the tax collectors were well-to-do. This further separated them from the lower classes who resented the injustice of ha- uh, their having to support the publicans' lavish lifestyles. The tax collectors, ostracized as they were from society, formed their own clique, further separating themselves from the rest of society. Given the low esteem people had for tax collectors, it is noteworthy that Jesus spent so much time with them. The reason he was eating that meal in Mark 2, which we haven't read, but in Mark 2, with the many tax collectors, is that he had just called Matthew, a tax collector, to to be one of his 12 disciples. Matthew was throwing a feast because he wanted to circle his friends to meet the Lord. Many believed in Jesus, verse 15. Jesus responded to the Pharisees' indignation by stating his ministry purpose. It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have, not call, I have not come to call the righteous, but the sinners. The Pharisees saw tax collectors as enemies to be shunned. Jesus saw them as a spiritually, spiritually sick to be healed. The Pharisees could offer nothing to the tax collectors except a list of rules. Jesus offered forgiveness of sins and the hope of a new life. No wonder the publicans like to spend time with Jesus, Luke 15, 1. And, tax, and the tax collectors like Jesus, oh, sorry, and tax collectors like Matthew and Zacchaeus were transformed by the gospel and followed the Lord. And so we have Zacchaeus here, who is hearing the word of God being and of God and being changed. And what does he tell Jesus? Behold, Lord, half of my possessions I'm giving to the poor, and if I have extorted anything from anyone, I'm giving back four times as much. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because he too is the son of Abraham. The Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. The giving of that kind of money, with interest per se, considering the four times as much, uh, showed a repentant heart. And this man had the money to give. He immediately gave plus more. This man saw the wickedness of his heart and wanted to fix the sin he was in by not only restoring back to people he stole from four times, but giving out of his own stash. Money was no longer going to be his master, but instead the Lord. Um, Looking at Another example of how giving or the lack thereof shows a repentant heart or not. The rich young ruler, a lot of us are very familiar with this, Mark 10, 17, 27. As he was setting out on a journey, a man ran up to him and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what shall I do so that I may inherit eternal life? But Jesus said to him, 
Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not give false testimony. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Mother. And he said to him, Teacher, I have kept all these things from my youth. Looking at him, Jesus showed love to him and said to him, One thing you lack, go and sell all you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. But he was deeply dismayed by these words, and he went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property. And Jesus, looking around, said to his disciples, How hard it will be for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus responded again and said to them, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were even more astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Looking at them, Jesus said, With people it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. And so did the young ruler have a repentant heart? It does not appear that way. For he had much wealth and loved it. He still idolized his money. His money was his master. His money was his God. What this young man did essentially was this. He committed spiritual suicide. He prospered his whole life long with material wealth and refused Jesus and perished. My friends, don't be like this man. There's that saying that says something to the effect of, I can tell you where your heart is at by view your bank account statement or your credit card statement or whatever and compare that to what you give, if you give it all. And though that thinking may not be 100% correct, I would definitely say it's directionally correct. And in this lesson, I'm trying to get you to understand how important it is to give, not just for the benefit of the church and the brothers and sisters in need, but for your own benefit. Because what does this say in 2 Corinthians 9, 6-8? Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. You need to understand God has you. If you are his, then you are his. He will provide for you. You need to understand that you can't outgive God. You give and he gives more. I don't want to say that if you give the church $100, God is going to give you 200 because it doesn't work that way. But maybe you start giving or up your offering and God rewards your faithfulness by a pay raise or a new job with more money. Maybe you give more and God rewards you with the dreaded spiritual blessings. Lord, you got any more of those monetary blessings? I'm not 100% sure how it works all other than scripture says God is able to bless you abundantly. And sometimes I think to myself and I wonder if God's people actually read that with a childlike heart, what we would do. Because we would read that statement and be comforted that God has us. And because he has us, I would no longer live in fear of the unknown. I would no longer hoard the possession God God has given me. I would want to bless others like God has blessed me. More examples of a repentant heart and correlations to money. In Acts 19, Paul is preaching and performing miracles by the power of God. And in verses 19-21, it reads this. And many of those who practiced magic brought their books together and began burning them in the sight of everyone. And they added up the prices of the books and found it to be 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord was growing and prevailing mightily. Look at the amount of wealth that was burned up. Probably even livelihoods of many who that was their jobs. It didn't matter anymore. They had the true riches of Christ and disposed of their evil deeds at a high monetary cost. 
In Luke 12, 13 through 21, we read another story of a rich man. He was so focused on his wealth. It reads, Now someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. But he said to him, You there, who appointed me a judge or arbitrator over the two of you? But he said to them, Beware and be on your guard against every form of greed. For not even when one is affluent does his life consist of his possessions. He told them a parable saying, The land of a rich man was up very productive and he began thinking to himself saying what shall i do since i know i have no place to store my crops and he said this, uh, and he said this is what i would do i would tear down my barns and build larger ones and i would store all my grain and my goods there and i would say to myself you have many goods stored up for many years to come relax eat drink and enjoy yourself but god said to him you fool this very night your soul is demanded of you and as for all that you have prepared, who will own it now? Such is the one who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich in relations to God. So trying to play out what just happened here in the parable. This rich, young, this rich man was so focused on becoming rich and having wealth. So in essence, he could retire since he was trying to store up grains for many years so he can relax, eat, and drink, and enjoy himself. And after he builds his bigger barns and stores his grain and goods... Look at the, what the Lord does. The Lord comes, comes before him and says, all that you built, it's worthless for yourself because you would not be able to enjoy any of it. What a fool. He took care of business on earth, but not business of his soul for heaven. And his soul was now going to be demanded of him that very night. I would say he didn't have a repentant heart. It was more about storing up treasures on earth than for the kingdom. And then as a brief aside, um, I'm sure this is a lesson and of itself, um, and so I could be not 100% correct with what I say, but um, when it comes to retirement, I know many of us are looking forward to the day we can retire, but we better and must understand that we can only ret retire if first we have made provisions to provide for our families during that time, then also if you realize that you may be retired from physically going to the office or wherever, but you not, must not become lazy if anything, during this time, your hands must refrain even more from idleness. And maybe something that would help is being more involved in the kingdom of the advancement, uh, the advancement of the kingdom. People are so focused on retiring to do their own things. But who has sat down and think, Lord, I can't wait to retire because I'm still going to be busy, but no longer busy with the things of this world, but instead the things of your kingdom. And like I said, that's probably not a lesson. That's all I got for that little side note. Looking at the widow and her two coins, in Luke 21 it reads, Now he looked up and saw the wealthy putting their gifts into the temple treasury, and he saw a poor widow putting in two leper coins, and he said, Truly I say to you, this poor widow put in more than any of them, for they all contributed to the offering from their surplus, but she from her poverty put in all that she had to live on. We must understand nowhere does it say that God is pleased with what she did, he just makes the statement you see above. This is to expound on my point earlier, that if you have no money for food to pay your bills, etc., then don't give. But John, Mar John MacArthur does a great sermon on these verses and why he pleased the Lord was actually displeased with what she did, mainly because she succumbed to the religious pressures of giving, the belief that money could buy salvation, and the fact that she was using these coins, oh, sorry, and the fact that she was not using these coins for food or needs was displeasing to the Lord. The fact that this religious system was preying on the poor and the widows, 
And we have to understand how poor this woman was. So the two coins she had were technically called mites. And a mite was 164th the value of a denarii at the time of the writing. And a denarii was about one day's wage. So she had 264th of a day's wage. In our day and age, a mite is about one-eighth of a penny in value. So you can see how impoverished this woman was. And she was still pressured, misled, fooled, guilt-tripped, whatever, into giving the last two coins. The Lord does not want to... want you to give all that you have so you can just go home and die. He doesn't want that, so don't do it. But you know what is also interesting about these verses? It says he looked up and saw the people putting in their giving. Better yet, Mark's account says from Mark twelve forty one, And Jesus sat down opposite the treasury and began watching how the people were putting, in, putting money into the treasury, and many rich people were putting in large amounts. So he was observing what people were giving to the extent that he was able to make out the two coins the woman gave was a mite. So you can see how he was observing intently. He made a point to watch. And I want to break a little news to you. He's still doing it to this day. He sees the various ungodly religious systems that continue to prey on the widows and the poor. And he sees what you do or do not put in. You may be able to hide it from other members. But he sees in another bit of news, he has every right to know what you are giving. As discussed previously, all that you have is really his. And once you finally realize that and understand that, how humble you become, how thankful you become in knowing that he is providing for you and has deemed you worthy to provide you with what you have. He has not only provided you with salvation, but continues to pour out his blessings upon you so you can enjoy his creation more maybe have some finer things in life, explore his world, partake in the riches. And for me personally, I shared this before, but me personally, it took me a while to come to that understanding. It wasn't the giving that was an issue. I gave, maybe maybe legalism played a role in it, but my heart behind it, there was always, every time, almost every time I should say, I put the money in the box or whatever, it was like it's gone. And then, and then there was sadness, thinking what I could have done with it. I could have paid this off sooner. I could have done this, this, this. And eventually, there just, came, there just came a point in time when that no longer mattered. And I was more joyful to give it than I used to be. Because now there was a sense, sense of thanks to God. Thank you for giving me what the means to give, first off. And thank you for what you have given me. Thank you for entrusting me with what you have given me. How I pray we would have the heart of Proverbs 37 through 9, which states, Two things I've asked of you. Do not refuse me before I die. Keep deception and lies far from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is my portion, so that I will not be fooled and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? And that I will not become impoverished and steal and profane the name of my God. A little tiny backstory in Proverbs 30. Proverbs 30 was the sayings of Agur, son of Jaki. Most of Proverbs was written by Solomon, but you have here at the end of chapter by Agur. Now, we don't know much about Agur at all. Many commenters believe Agur lived in the same time period as Solomon, but that cannot be confirmed. And so the Proverbs say Agur was weary and worn out in verses 1. He did not consider himself wise, verses 2 to 4. He considered God's words completely true, verses 5 through 6. And then in Proverbs 30, 7 through 9, he expresses to God a request that the Lord remove lying from him 
and give him neither riches nor poverty. Agur's prayer in verses 7 through 9 as he is praying against the extremes of abundance and want. The heart of Agur's prayer is to be content with the portion God provides. And we've talked about contentment in previous lessons. With these words, Agur acknowledges his weakness and dependence on God for strength to overcome temptation. He is acutely aware of his human tendency to forget God when life is too comfortable and blessed with abundance or turn away from God and dishonor him when life is full of hardships. In saying, give, give me neither poverty nor riches, he asked the Lord for just enough to meet his day-to-day needs. His prayer sounds very much like the Lord's prayer when Jesus says, give us each day our daily bread and lead us not into temptation, doesn't it? I conclude this thought with just saying that I pray we would have a similar prayer. Lord, just give me my portion, whatever that portion is that you have already declared. But don't give me too much that I would forget the one who gave it, or too little that I would grow better to you. Starting, starting to wrap up, kind of. Uh, I have a question, and it may be a tough question for some and not for others, but it's an important question to answer, important to ponder and correct if need be. And it's a precursor for the next time we meet. But do you ever look forward to coming to church and giving your offering? Presenting your offering should be joyous. And it's not about the amount you give. Second Corinthians 8.12 says, For if, you, if the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what one does not have. But do you not trust Scripture? Because giving is a form of trusting and obeying. Isn't that what the whole faith is about, trusting and obeying? If you trust, then you will obey. I mentioned earlier, Scripture says, 2 Corinthians 9, 6-8, Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver, and God is able to bless you abundantly, so then all, that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. So as you can see, you give, he will give in return. I would say that giving is an issue of obedience. Do you want to be obedient? Do you enjoy blessing others? It hasn't happened much lately, but your giving in past times has gone toward helping different families uh, with need of um, things that they were encountering in life. It pays for the rent so we can all meet. Do you enjoy providing what we provide to our pastor? Because I think about the kind of trust he must have in relying on God to provide a good chunk of his family's income. We pray often on Wednesdays that we would not be consumers but givers. And let me say something. If you regularly attend church, see our prayer meeting, etc., and have the ability to give and are not giving, you're being a consumer that we pray against. And there are people in this church who are doing that. And I pray that we would look forward to giving because through it we will, you will be blessed. Or do you not believe Acts 20.35, which states, It is more blessed to give than to receive. And I want you to understand if you are a stay-at-home mom, wife, you too should be joyful in what you, your family is offering. You play a role in keeping the house in order, assisting your husband and whatnot so he can go out and provide the monetary means to provide. So this is your offering as well. Though I, 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 I don't think it matters who's doing the budgeting per se. I think if the wife is better at it, then let her have it. If the husband's better at it, let him do it. But when there is a shortfall, when something, when you need to come up with more finances because your fixed expenses have gotten too high and, and there's just no more expenses to cut, 
you are the, the man, you should be the one going out and, and pr producing this necessary income. I wouldn't rely on the wife to be the one to figure out what to do next. You are the provider. So you need to understand that you need to provide. It's not always gonna be fun to do, but it's your responsibility as the man to figure it, figure it out and get your finances uh, in line. And um, I actually added this last part from the last time I uh, did this, because um, I thought I, I was thinking about it the other night. Um, at the last men's study, I was asked, what do I think is the main cause of the lack of giving in our church? And now I'm sure there are a combination of factors, but personally, I believe the biggest cause is the lack of trust in God. And in part five, again, we will really hit on this. And as I stated, we collectively as a church are not living in poverty. We may not be driving up in Corvettes, but we do okay. I'm, I'm fully convinced that if we trusted in the fact that God provides, we would be more open to giving and thanks for what he has, pro has provided, knowing he has us in the end. Now, I'm not saying get dumb about it and write the check, church a check for $5,000 and go, well, God better provide now because it doesn't work that way. But this church could give more. This church could sacrifice a bit to, uh, to support the ministry. And it, it's interesting. We've had multiple budget meetings in the past where we would state if, there, if the account gets to a certain point, pastor would have to take a pay cut because there really is no other expense we can lower that will move the needle. And the crazy thing is maybe I'm wrong, but it's like we're, we're okay with it. Other than a few comments of people saying nah, they wish that more could be done, I see no action. And this is a detriment to myself as well, because me and Abby give. But reviewing this week's material, studying through the Macedonian churches, made me feel like what I thought was good giving, in reality, could be better. As a church, in many ways, I feel like we strive to save, but at the same time as a church, I feel like we blow through the cash we've been made stewards of, and we do it better than most, and practically, practically each family contributes to this. I'm not going to call out people from up here, but if you as an individual really want me to give my opinion on what I think about how you handle your finances, we can talk privately. I don't know exactly everyone's situation, but we've been around each other since you started attending this church, and I've gleaned enough from conversations and have visuals. I know um, sometimes, uh, last thought, sometimes I actually hate being in a Reformed church, and I say this because I'm not trying to be humble or anything, but when I'm among you all, I feel like I'm, I'm among theologians. And I was telling Abby about this because, I mean, I really do. And that knowledge-wise, I'm truly the least of you all. The way you guys remember things, can explain things, the knowledge you have is just so superior to mine. And the Reformed Church setting plays a role in that we take the Bible serious and knowing it. But at the same time, when it comes out to living this knowledge, we fall short. I know Pastor has said a number, on a number of occasions he preaches better than he lives, and I truly get that concept. But I feel like as a church, we use that for our, ourselves as a crutch. We go, well, I mean, I'm not perfect, so I'm just going to continue in sin, continuing to fall short, so grace may, may abound. But Paul doesn't encourage that kind of mindset. He says, God forbid. So, so instead of just having the minds of theologians, I ask that we all make a better effort to live the life we preach. Pray to God for conviction and sanctification in this area. Where we are falling short, we don't write it off as, yeah, I know it's my struggle. We all have them. Instead, let's correct these issues. And this is in relations not only to money, but all aspects of the Christian life. 
And understand one final point. God doesn't need your money. If, if you think he does, you have a lapse in judgment of the God that we serve. This church's existence will not be determined by your giving, or should I say lack thereof. It will be determined by our faithfulness and God's will for our existence. I'm teaching this lesson as a way for you to partake in the joy of giving, the joy of presenting your offering before the Lord, and just being obedient to provide for the leaders, in this case leader, since we only pay one person, of the church that you attend. And I've had these private conversations with people in the past to uh, encourage them to give. In the end, I would typically close with, I can tell you all these things, but I can't cut the check for you. It's up to you. Do you trust in God? Do you trust he will provide? Are you willing to make changes in your life to get to the point of providing? We'll close with prayer. Lord, I pray that you do a work in your people where we are in sin, correct our hearts, continue to sanctify us, grow our, grow our trust in you, end up finding us faithful in how we lived out this life and how we supported the church you have given us. Amen. Hi there, this is Austin Hetzler, the pastor of Christ the Rock Church of Illyria, Ohio. We at Christ the Rock are humbled and grateful to be a part of your sanctification today as you listen to this sermon. But at the same time, we want to encourage you to be a member of a good local church and not to allow online sermons to replace the local church and to benefit from the life of that church and to give your spiritual gifts back to that church. Having said that, our website is www.christrockchurch.com. If you go there, you can find sermons, blogs, and other resources as well as our location and service times. You can also listen to the sermons on Bible Thumping Wingnut, Podbean, iTunes, Google Play Music, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and Stitcher. I, along with the membership of Christ the Rock Church, pray that this sermon will be a blessing to you.